This episode of All the President's Minutes is brought to you by bellacatering.com.au. Bella Catering, one of Sydney's very best catering companies run by Glenn and Maria and their team. Glenn is a degenerate, but their entire team is absolutely incredible. Great food, great reasonable prices, great delivery all around Greater Sydney. So do yourselves a favor, don't cook. Order some food from bellacatering.com.au. They are going to be a company that has the staying power to survive past COVID-19, but with your help. So if you can, bellacatering.com.au, you can check them out. They are definitely friends of the show and of this series and of all One Heat Minute productions. And we're very proud that they jumped on as a sponsor to all the President's Minutes. We're happy to point people in their direction. We love them dearly. So if you guys have got a few uh, a few extra bucks and you don't want to cook, really, who the hell wants to cook right now? Um, I mean, you're just looking at that number in Victoria of coronavirus patients go up and up thinking about things shutting down, order some catering. Cater for the remaining family. You can get to your house in Sydney right now. Thank you so much for listening. Here's the show. And then the police are afraid to do anything. I I know New York very well. I know the police very well. New York's finest. And the fact is, they're restricted from doing anything. They can't do anything. So what are you planning on doing? Well, I'm going to do something that I can tell you, because we're not going to let New York and Chicago and Philadelphia, Detroit and Baltimore and all of these. Oakland is a mess. We're not going to let this happen in our country. So all run by liberal Democrats. So more federal law enforcement to some of these we're cities? More federal law enforcement that I can tell you. In Portland, they've done a fantastic job. They've been there three days. And they really have done a fantastic job in a very short period of time. No problem. They grab them. A lot of people in jail. They're leaders. These are anarchists. These are not protesters. People say protesters. These people are anarchists. These are people that hate our country. And we're not going to let it go forward. And I'll tell you what, the governor and the mayor and the senators out there, they're afraid of these people. That's the reason they don't want us to help them. They're afraid. I really believe they're actually maybe even physically afraid of these people because what they're doing is incredible. We didn't just go there. This wasn't like it started right away. We went there after 51 days. We said, we can't let that happen anymore. But these are anarchists and the politicians out there, yes, they're weak, but they're afraid of these people. They're actually afraid of these people. And that's why they say, we don't want the federal government helping. How about Chicago? Would you say they need help after this weekend? Do you know the numbers? Did you hear the numbers? Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to All the President's Minutes. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Joining me today is a film and culture writer pretty much all over the place. Um, Seems to happen these days that I talk to folk who just write all over the place because that's our landscape. But I first started diving through this very talented film and culture writer's work through Twitter, as I tend to with everyone, and discovered a really brilliant piece of hers about Alan J. Pakula's first part of the Paranoia Trilogy on Clute, on the AV Club. And one line particularly uh, struck me at that moment, which is she was talking about cinematographer Gordon Willis, and she said that his cinematography was like chiaroscuro, which is a... A, a brush and a pencil technique um, in in sort of black and white uh, and usually associated with sort of J- Japanese animation. And I was like, that is such a perfect description of this guy's entire 
style and I hadn't ever heard it described that way before and I continued to obviously follow her and know her and um, and I was like, this is another person that I want to talk to on this show. An extremely talented Washington DC based, another person who's tread the streets of uh, Woodward and Bernstein, um, a writer that uh, I'm pleased to have on the show, Beatrice Louisa. Thank you so much for being a part of the show. Thank you for having me. So you're a fan first and foremost of Alan J. Pakula. Let's start there because I think we've been bouncing all over the map for folks who are listening because uh, this is now the 72nd episode of this show, All the President's Minutes. In, in the last few episodes, we've spoken to uh, press secretaries, we've spoken to journalists uh, for uh, big uh, uh, publications, I've spoken to an Indigenous journalist, we're about to speak to a newsman, and I'm glad whenever I get to jump back in to talk to a film geek and writer and a culture <laughs> appropriator, so a culture uh, connoisseur such as myself, why are you a fan of Alan J. Pakula? Let's talk about Pakula. Right. Um, I mean, he's probably the, the whole trilogy, Clue, The Parallax View, All the President's Men, is probably one of my favorite, I guess, collections of work post in, in American film post the studio system. I just think that there's, you know, very distinctive noir elements. It's just really tense and thrilling. It also brings in a whole new generation of actors who would go on. Yes. Um, to just have these really brilliant careers and whom I love, like all of them <laughs> in very distinct ways. Um, it's funny that you mentioned Clute because I, I do absolutely love that movie. But I think my favorite of the three might be The Parallax View. Yeah, it's, um, and it's funny because the article at the time that you wrote it was talking about um, Parallax, oh, sorry, Clute rather being the only one that's, officially on the Criterion Collection, but it's only very recently that they had the Parallax view on the Criterion channel. Like it came on, it was one of those ones that sort of pops on the channel for a short amount of time. And I remember rewatching it again around the show. And uh, I think it's really one of those things. It's kind of like the, the, what I'd call like the Coppola stretch um, between sort of 72 and 79. I think you can have that experience with Pakula, which is, any one of his films on any given day, depending on your mood, because they're all That's so true. brilliant. You can just love that one the most. Like um, I, I, I can That's confess, true. I can confess to you and everyone listening. There's been plenty of times where I've watched Parallax during the middle of this project and gone, this is so, this equally is a movie that could totally take a minute by minute scrutiny. It's br like, it's brilliant. It has so much of that, that same energy and it's all very abstract. It's not specific. So you could have a whole deal of fun with it, you know, thinking from just a pure analytical perspective, you know, it's, um, mm. and yeah, I just, oh man, it is, uh, it, it is, it is a very special one. And so such a out of, out of type baity at the time that he's like just <laughs> a star on the rise, massively, massively star on the rise. Right, right. Beatty's great in that. He's Warren Beatty might, might be one of my favorite actors, actually. But um, <laughs> but yeah, the parallax view is interesting because I mean I think that Clute, just like on a personal level, kind of you know hits me, kind of hits me in like the gut. It's yes. like I feel it on an emotional level, um, you know, just as a woman in the city. But the parallax or uh. 
the parallax view. Um, just like the book ended images, like, you know, how it starts um, in the, what's it called? The sky needle. Yeah. Sky needle. Yep. The, the Seattle, the sky needle in, in Seattle and just, you know, having it start out in just like the middle of the sky and then the very ending when it's in this auditorium, there's something very haunting about the emptiness of that. And I always find myself thinking about these images and it's kind of like the story almost doesn't matter to me ultimately. Uh, but there's something so haunting about those images that I guess is, is why I, right now, at least I would call it my favorite. I, I love those, um, that cavernous sort of auditorium that the sweeping shots that just show the true scope of that, they freak me out. They kind of freak me out because I think of, you know, <laughs> yeah. they, 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 they do a little bit because it's like in Australia, we, we have a markedly smaller population. So, you know, whenever we see anything, if there is a, you know, if there's a 3 million people protest around, especially like around, you know, um, uh, black lives matter and then indigenous lives or Aboriginal lives matter protests that happened very recently, you know, we were getting great protest turnouts in this country and that's, you know, 50 to a hundred thousand people hitting the streets in some of our major cities. And that's all like, it was an incredible, incredible turnout and, and, and a great sort of, you know, especially in the midst of a pandemic, obviously, but then you see the scale, like Los Angeles pop total, I think greater Los Angeles total population is I think the same population as the entire country of Australia. <laughs> and so like when I see though, when you see those spaces as an outsider, uh, and, and you think, wow, they're, they're sort of catering to this unbelievable, like for me, like unfathomable crowd of like people who would just be sitting at these desks and uh, so, sorry, <laughs> tables. it's just like, that's so many people like, you know, that would take it, you know, one of our biggest sporting events to get even that many people and they'd be crammed into a stadium. It wouldn't be this big, like just a political event or whatever the, whatever the inference <laughs> is in parallax. Um, yeah, it's th th those ones sort of, you're so right. There's, there's shots in Pagula movies that haunt you. I think that also is a testament to just films that have, you know, even if you don't love the overarching film, that that can actually hook you back in totally. I'm so like that. Where if, there's a, if the shot lingers or a mood lingers with me or mm -hmm. someone really emotionally resonates, even a single character in something and it just really hangs around, um, then you can go, you know what, there, um, there's not – you know, there may not be much there, but I'm thinking about different shots in that movie a lot. I'm thinking about feelings, um, and, and you can sometimes be drawn back. Not as many times as I've been drawn back to all the presidents, <laughs> um, to be fair. So Beatrice, let's, um, uh, uh, we, we're, we're going to get started. I think this is a, a good time for us to probably jump in to the minute, um, it is the 72nd minute. So for folks who are listening and you're looking on your dial, there aren't alternate versions of presidents, which is a relief. So if you're watching this on video on demand <laughs> yeah. or on Blu-ray on DVD, it should be the identical moment that we're about to look at together. So if you just go to one hour and 11 minutes and just hit pause, Beatrice and I are going to watch along together right now. You guys are going to listen along and then we're going to come back and talk about it. Lasky, Lamb, Donstell, Boyle, Brenner, Bromley, Jost, Naismith, Narrow, Ness, Nichols, Martini, Sandstrom, Sweet. 
the name's crossed off, and what do you got? People aren't talking, Harry. And it's the way they're not talking that's unnatural. Harry, we've been up all night. We went over all the quotes of the people who like slammed getting instructions in face. You want to hear some real news? That GAO report, which you place so much faith, well, it's been postponed till after tonight's renomination. What do you mean? What? You just got a call from Stans in Florida. Says he has new information not to... There it is. Yeah. Yeah. It, it decept- it's a deceptive minute because it starts out with one of those beautiful sweeping shots we were just talking about. I was just thinking about that, of like this dwarfing quality of Washington, D.C., and then it comes into this yeah. great bodies in space motion. What do you like? What do you think about the minute? What did you think about it when I signed this particular one? You were like, oh, God, this is boring, or was it no uh, No, no. I mean, I think, I mean, so we see like a bird's eye view of the city, and you kind of, get a sense of just how much grunt work they need to do yes. to you know, solve what it is they need to solve. They're literally listing these names as you're looking at the city and you realize there's just thousands and thousands <laughs> of people here. The scope of this is enormous. It's literally just the entire city. So I think it was, visually it's really effective just to convey the sense of just like how much just, grunt work they're needing to go through and just, you know, the listing off of names and you and, can just imagine all the documents. <laughs> and and the time, it's such a cool choice to do it at sort of that dusk moment because it's like as they're rattling off the names, all the lights of the cities come on. So obviously like these big, you know, chunky buildings that have no lights on in the inside, they can sort of feel like monolithic structures because there's like, oh, there's only a few structures. But as all the lights come on, there's like, a hundred lights a building and then there's 500 buildings and then there's 500,000 lights and they're just mm-hmm. rattling off all these very sort of, uh, and, and no offense to the names, but sort of very common names. Like a lot of them, there's a few that are unique, but like common names and the city's getting bigger. And then you've got the needle of, of the Washington monument in the, you know, the spire sort of, you know, up the obelisk up in the air and it's sort of at the center and there's this sort of weird gravitational pull happening. Um, this is a minute when I get to them that I get excited to talk to a film person and a person who analyzes this sort of stuff. Cause I'm like, this is just something that a lot of people can be like, Oh, it's like a tempo changer. It's a palate cleanser or whatever. But these are the moments I relish. Cause like, this is where they can totally be artistic because so much of the movie, they have to be slavishly adherent to such a, an incredibly well-known story with incredibly well-known things. And they have to honor every single beat of that. They can't, they can't at all deviate. Um, so yeah, I just, I, I love this and I love that whole first segment of the minute. Yeah. I, I like what you said about, I wasn't even thinking about the as we were watching it just now, but um, the fact that the lights turn on, I mean, you know, you think of DC brutalist architecture, these like behemoth <laughs> structures and there's like just this sense of secrecy to them. Like, you know, there's powerful people inside. There's like all these government secrets and stuff, but then like the lights turn on and it's kind of gestures towards the fact that, you know, they're also making their way into that space of secrecy and yes. the lights literally are shining. <laughs> and, and, and their lights are coming on. And it's into, yeah, it's exactly. <laughs> their lights are coming on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then there's the great, we, we transition into the newsroom and I just, I cannot get enough of how beaten up these guys look. I'm just going to, cause 
Beatrice and I have been looking at this together, but I'm just going to get like pivot back so she can say, I just like their body language. They look, it's a, in a, in a movie where Robert Redford maybe is his peak handsome and Hoffman's <laughs> hair has never been better. It, like it's never more Vidal Sassoon. Like it's the most beautiful his hair's ever looked in a movie. I think feathery, <laughs> a feathery right? It's beautiful. Um, it's, these guys right at this moment look like, and, and pardon my French, but they look like shit. Like they couldn't look any more tired. They look like how I look right now for Beatrice is alone. <laughs> the, the one who's allowed to, um, has the, has the luxury of seeing me, but they just look tired. They look completely exhausted. And, and what's, there's some really great maneuvering here of body language where, um, where, where Harry is sort of standing up and reading their notes, looking over what everything that they've done. And then he, he shifts, he shifts his body language for them. He makes, mm-hmm. make, makes a point to come down to their level. Um, Jack Warden, that is, um, uh, is playing editor. And he makes the point of coming down to their level to speak to them because they look so bedraggled. <laughs> they look so out of it. And he's like, I'm going to come down to these guys level. I'm going to speak to them in this moment. It's a great, it's a great little, <laughs> it's a great little sort of pivot moment. Definitely. It's, it's funny that, I mean, they definitely don't look good, um, <laughs> but just like compared to, I don't know, just my experience as a freelance journalist and, you know, even people I see walking around DC that I know are journalists. I mean, their clothes is a lot cooler. <laughs> they kind of have this like chic fatigue to them that, I mean, just kind of non-existent nowadays. It's just, you know, watching this movie as, as a writer is also just bizarre to me because there's, there's so much action involved. They're like, you know, running around for sources. They're like in this newsroom and like, this morning I woke up and replied to some work emails in bed, (laughs) which I don't know. I mean, I, they're definitely tired, but I romanticize it a little bit. Um, No, I, I, I feel you. It's, it's much the same. I think, I think in, you know, in, in the wake of the pandemic, a lot of people, because, you know, any freelance journalist and Beatrice can attest to this is like, we kind of, um, uh, you know, anyone who's doing freelances, you've got multiple jobs. You might be writing for a, a company and doing corporate stuff as well. And then you do your freelancing gear. It's like how you support and maintain whatever for your family. And it's like, I think in the pandemic, when people had to set up home offices, they've been probably way more organized than they have been in the past. Cause usually it's like, get up, reply to emails, wherever, like on your phone, running around from this thing to that thing. <laughs> um, then, jump on a laptop, try and type up something, you know, you're doing it in a cafe, you're doing it on the train, you're doing it wherever. And it's, it's sort of, it is, has that sort of runaround, but I look at these guys and I look at this newsroom and I just get, I just get, you know, doughy eyed and look at it and go, Oh man, wouldn't it be great to just work with people again? Just have a whole bunch of people like Beatrice and I in a big newsroom on different beats talking about movies and culture writing and stuff and podcasts and have, you know, we could bring Corduroy back. I'm not above bringing the Corduroy <laughs> back. Um, but yeah, no, it's, 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 yeah, it's, de- you definitely look at it with romanticized uh, uh, eyes in, in this moment. And I just want to bring up, there's one little like, sort of thing and I'm going to flip so we can actually pinpoint the moment. If you, if you guys check it out at home and some of you are as obsessive as I am, um, if you just stop at like the 40th second of this minute, I know that's very specific, but it's just, it's just while the guys are slouching down. Um, it's something that Craig Lindsay brought up to me, which I hadn't noticed a great, um, a great, uh, African-American film critic, 
Um, terrifically funny guy. But he brought up that the Carl Bernstein's obsession with cycling. And I, I hadn't noticed it in the movie before because he is apparently a, a very noted oh, cyclist. So you see the wheel here, which you see in another scene earlier. You see it beside his desk. But I hadn't noticed there's a, a poster of a guy riding mm. in front of Carl's desk. And I, I assume that based on just how damn specific all of the production design is, that um, that this is you know a, a carbon copy of what would have been at Carl's desk. He was obviously an advisor on the film. And, and, you know, helped help to produce it and all that sort of stuff and based on the novel that he wrote um, and his life. And so, yeah, it was just really funny when I was lo looking at this because Craig Lindsay, like, pointed it out. He's like, did you know that Carl Bernstein is, like, a fierce, like, cyclist? Like, he was known for it, riding around the town. And I, I didn't and since did the research. It's just a great little touch that's like, oh, that that's – that's that one time they could use that poster to, so we could feel like a different view of being at Carl's desk because we, you know, so so little of the time we've spent here, we've spent it in, in that central pod where Woodward works. That's interesting. I, I didn't know that about Bernstein, but it kind of makes sense in like the scope of, you know, DC people or I, I don't know where I got this information, but apparently like the DC Northern Virginia region has like the fittest people in the United States. Really? And it's true, so many people exercise, like the amount of little fitness boutique studios and like gyms, there are so many, it's like an excessive amount. Yeah. And, you know, especially during the pandemic, it's just, I mean, sometimes the runners take up the streets, like it's a marathon going on, <laughs> but you know, it's, it's not. Um, and yeah, I just, and, and so many, I think, that's, political that's, shows, that, that's political true. movies. That's true in Sydney too at the moment. Like I, my, I've got, I live in sort of a quiet suburb out just out of Sydney. Mm -hmm. And since the pandemic has happened, like I, I used to, I made the point of like going for runs usually when my kids go to bed or, you know, those sorts of things. And I, I was always the, the only guy on the road, like, and especially when we have daylight savings time in Sydney, um, which I was right at the tail end of at the beginning of the lockdown, there were so many more people out, like every single day, <laughs> like you would see multiple people and now, now working from home and, you know, running at different times of the day, usually at lunchtime and stuff like mm -hmm. that, there are just, there are people out all the time. And the only other time that I felt really intimidated is like my, my wife and I went to Paris, um, for, for part of our honeymoon. And I just, I remember seeing the same thing in Parisian streets, like all these really, you know, awfully attractive people um, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, just running through Paris. And I'm like, God damn it. Look at all these beautiful fit people running around here. This is just <laughs> it's disgusting. Get out of here, guys. Yeah, that is like, I think something I noticed in a lot of these procedurals and political thriller movies, just like the trope of, like the staffer, whomever, whomever running to like the Lincoln Memorial yes, or running through the the mall and stuff. I mean, it's true. My, my boyfriend does that. He's, <laughs> he's a more avid runner than I am, but it's definitely a big thing here. So they're, they're sitting here, they're getting this, this GAO report on the potential uh, misappropriation of funds is waiting to go ahead and they're feeling like this is a potentially disruptive force that's going to stop Nixon's locomotive dead in its tracks, you know, to, to renomination. And this is a moment where they're trying to find really, they're trying to find supplementary something to help power that news, to help power that report. So there's a government report 
paired with Washington um, uh, uh, Washington Post reporting that reveals internal and external, you know, so gov- government reported investigation plus their own investigations together to sort of help mount the pressure uh, on the Nixon administration. But in this moment, they get this absolute beautiful truth bomb by the inimitable Jack Warden, who is actually being quite soft and sweet with them because he can see, I know. He can see that they look like hell and he's just being probably more sweet than he is in other parts of the film. Um, but nonetheless, um, he, he sort of dissuades them of this fairy tale moment that they've got, which is this massive GAO report that they put a lot of faith in is being pushed pushed back and and it, it's not going to affect his renomination. In fact, it's probably going to, under the weight of the fact that he is being renominated, it's going to just drown in the the existing coverage of the fact that he's renominated and the fact that he's now almost certainly going to be reelected. Right. Yeah. It's funny in scenes like this and like often in the newsroom, just the way the camera focuses on you know, footage on the TV, especially like from the election and like Nixon himself. And then that contrast with the fluorescent lights. Um, I've been watching or in the past months, I I was watching, rewatching some of Mad Men, which also figures characters kind of gathering around a TV at times, watching real footage and and the fluorescence. And it's funny that in that show, some wonderful um, moments in that, some of the best moments of the whole series of them watching history happen. Right, right. And I think, you know, I forget, you know, what season or whatever, but um, they do, they do support Nixon. Yes, I think yeah. the, the higher ups, Roger and oh, Roger's Don, the Nixon. Are, are Nixon Roger's supporter. The Nixon. <laughs> Don't even get it twisted, exactly. Roger. Yeah. It's I saw, funny I, just because. I saw a funny tweet about which of your characters would have voted like would be Republicans or vote, you know, vote for something. And like, it was funny that Roger, Roger would totally be a Nixon guy. Oh, And I just spoke, I spoke a few episodes to to a great uh, episodes ago to a great sports editor um, and, and and former Washington post express uh, sports editor, Sarah Kelly. And um, she, you know, we were talking about Friday night lights. And so it tweaked to me. Someone was like, I think that, um, uh, I think that the coach from Friday night lights um, would have voted for Trump. And, and like, it was just like people started throwing their favorite fictional characters under the bus to be like, who of, who of these people would have voted for Trump? Oh, yeah. yeah. And I was like, I was like, no, not you, Coach Taylor, please. Um, <laughs> vote Libertarian. Rogers. Rogers. Oh, yeah. Rogers is <laughs> a Nixon guy. That's no, there's never a doubt there. He's old money. Yeah, I think. He, um, he's old money. You, he's old money. He, he <laughs> definitely would have been. Right. Doesn't Woodward say he's he's a Republican he too is. at he some is. point? He he is, and yeah. it's a, it's um, it, he does, and it's it's a it, we haven't gotten to that moment in the film yet, but it's one of my favorites because it like it, it it's it's so oh. uh, so underplayed, but it's so great because it's true. He's like, oh, Republican, and you see the like, if Bernstein had had coffee in his mouth, there would have been a spit take. Like, it's such a great, like, what the hell? (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I think that this far into the movie, that's what's great about it is that it's like these two guys have, you know, they're conflicting enough on a whole bunch of other ideas. Um, So Mm -hmm. it's no surprise that they they get to that moment together. Yeah. I mean, and that's kind of part of how the movie is trying to show that these guys are trying to 
do honest journalism here, report yes. the facts, not have it be politicized, even though, you know, they might have beliefs that would otherwise <laughs> <laughs> not be so good, great. I think it's hard, you know, Beatrice, you and I, uh, and particularly yourself, going riding around different places, it's like you're not having to as readily engage or, or, or mark your stance of where you are politically in the ground, like as consistency is like consistently rather as like a political reporter or something like that. But I mean, the, 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 the way that we believe or, or, or there's this sort of foundational belief that journalism should be completely absent of like political voices or, or won't have a political voice and it will be completely and wholly objective seems kind of stupid because it like you are reading, you know, you know, there always might be a, like a twinge of it, but I think that great reporting is ultimately like it is, it is stating the objective facts. It might be laced with a, like a little bit of opinion or a voice <laughs> that has an opinion, but ultimately like it's the scrutiny and the, and the strength of the facts that the story is built on that. Like it's the story, the story is the facts ultimately. And then sometimes it's the voice mm -hmm. that's telling you, but it's like, I think the more and more that, you know, there's this whole thing that the lie of the live journalism is completely objective. Like, you know, you can see it mm -hmm. in the way that there's the sort of bipartisan media in your country, particularly. And now one definitely that is, <laughs> it has got a stranglehold in my country um, because uh, you know, just different, different, uh, right-wing newspapers criticizing our left-wing, you know, power brokers and governors for not being able to control outbreaks of the coronavirus, much like Trump is sort of on his propaganda wagon about different states and towns that are, um, that are out of control protesting and things like that. Mm -hmm. And they're all liberal Democrats and things like that. Um, but yeah, I think, uh, I think that there's, that's maybe one of the great balance, balance elements of these guys is that, you know, their voice can sort of be objective because they're both coming from completely different angles. So when you do actually meet in the middle, it's probably as objective as it gets, which is why people probably consumed it so voraciously during this time. Right. Um, and what I like about, about this, I mean, there's definitely, it's definitely looking at their potential objectivity as like a more pure thing. Yes. Um, but I think it's, what I like about it is it's not, too overly heroic about that, like, you know, something like the post, which is also similarly um, concerned with presenting an objective view of what's happening and exposing, you know, government corruption, but it's just that there's a heroism to it. Yes. Um, that's just like wanting us to agree and like feel like we need to champion that. But um, I, I like that that's not as much the case here because I don't know, there's just, it, it's, more restrained and I think it's more intellectual in that sense. Yeah. I think also we, even though the post is also earlier and it's starting out with, you know, a, a new Ben Bradley in, in the chair, so to speak in the post as the, as the executive editor and all those sorts of things. What's cool about these two guys is that they're green and that we're still learning. And even at this moment in the film, mm -hmm. they are not as good a journalist as they are at the end of the film. And, you know, I, I, like even right this second, like the whole trajectory and the way that time passes, they're not as good. They're, they're under more scrutiny. They're, they're, uh, they're having less one-to-one -one conversations with the executive editors of the paper. Like they're not, you know, they're not considered to be great. So like even, even if you look at the scenes about 10 minutes ago now, the Bradley scene with Howard 
and these two guys in his office where he says that great line, where's the goddamn story? He's still looking at Howard saying, you should have these guys in check. You know, you're the editor that's meant to be taking care of them. I don't want them to come in to spout nonsense to me. Like, it's still very much this hierarchical approach to them. They're, they're so green. What's great is that we get to see them grow. And we also, I think once you know that people can be flawed and there's growth and they're not these just perfection, that's where I think where you're reading that like nuance and that and that sort of more delicate approach to it. Because we've already seen these guys stuff up so many times. Even the culmination of the movie, like spoilers, is, you know, they, they have just been on the precipice of like a really bad screw up and they are willing to, to throw it all away. They're like, okay, this could be the end of this if we were wrong. And I think that that is that pursuit of like, we've worked so goddamn hard for this, but if we're wrong, we know mm. that we're not right for the story. <laughs> um, that is, you know, that's something that really, really like makes them admirable characters ultimately because they right. continue yeah. to be flawed. Yeah. And I like how marginal they are, especially, yes, you know, in the beginning, there's this, feeling that they very well could be on this wild goose chase. I mean, they're like chasing people in these like dark shadowy like garages and they're talking about people who we don't even see. Like they're just referring to people in terms of their names, but like we don't even know who they're talking about or like where they are. Um, And it's just like our, do they actually have something? And that's like the question for like the longest time, yes. um, which I think kind of just fits in to, I guess, Gordon Willis's depiction of DC. Because I mean, like, as you were saying earlier, you know, some of the artistry comes out in these like seemingly nothing shots, just yes. like views of the city or like alleyways or, you know, certain DC buildings. But I mean, it's it's telling that these spaces tend, you know, under uh, through Willis's camera are usually, um, you know, empty spaces have this like weird interplay of like light and shadow. It's just like, is there anything there? Like, are we looking at anything? Yes. <laughs> and like, you know, ultimately we are, but there's always that that feeling that you know we might not be. <laughs> these guys are just wasting their efforts. And we are now just cresting over the halfway point of the film. And it is still like when you think of overall how, how the conspiracy sort of snowballs and this avalanche of stuff happens really bookended in historical terms. We don't actually see any of it play out in the movie, but um, right now we still don't really have anything. And so like when you, particularly when you're looking at these scenes from Willis, like you said, it's such a great point is it is still shrouded in darkness. There may be nothing there. And I think um, I have to credit the very talented writer and editor, um, uh, Jason Bailey, for coming up with the, the prospect. He's like, look, Pakula gets Gordon Willis, who's known as the Prince of Darkness, to shoot one of the most well-lit movies uh, that he's ever shot in his life because it's all in this newsroom. And he's like, and whenever they had any opportunity to be off this set, Gordon Willis went ham was his exact description. He's just like, they just let him off the leash and he just went crazy to shoot it however he wanted to shoot it and bring all of his... Uh, artistic pent-up energy to those scenes and so yeah i think all this interconnective tissue like it's none of it is none of it is inconsequential like every second of it is like so rich and they're really taking their time to say something with it and yeah i love i love just how much nothing they still have right now like we're more than halfway through um and pacing is so 
you know, even even all the way up until the end of this movie, like, how much do we really know that they have? Um, right. That battle, you know, um, the, ty- the the difference also, like, with the post is, like, once they get, you know, the Panama Papers, you know, the, the, and, and they're starting to work through it, like, once they've got, or, or, or sorry, the Pentagon Papers, rather, once they've got that together and they bring that to the post, like, you know they have the thing. It's just about finding the thing. Mm-hmm. So here, I think one of the just, obviously, they're completely different movies, but set in the same newsroom. But that's what I love about this is, like, we don't actually know if they've got it. And I like it. you make the great point that they're completely marginal until they're not. Like, even they're teased by the editors. Who the hell are Woodward and Bernstein if you guys care about this story? <laughs> like, uh, it's, it's, it's great. Yeah, and, like, as the movie progresses, you're, you know, more and more aware that they are, in fact, in danger, which, which um, Deep Throat eventually does tell them. But I feel like, like I was aware of that beforehand, and just seeing them walk through these big spaces it's just like you can see already see them becoming targets they're just like little people in these like you know Mm. like in front of these big buildings or um in these empty you know dark areas where they're having their meetings or you know showing up to people's apartments and homes you're just like okay be careful start being careful yeah it's (laughs) there's a moment that comes up and I, I love what you said there, which is that there is the sense of dread and danger well before that's underscored. But when it's underscored right in that moment, it's like it kind of, it, it really hits the nail on its head because it's like your lives are such in danger that I'm like, I'm just going to quickly sort of shake you and remind you your lives are in danger, you know? And um, yeah. there's a moment where so many beautiful, well-lit shots of like, day daytime meetings of either burns you know burns talking to his uh talking to his contact at the phone company drinking out of his tartan flask in in the middle of that beautiful park in uh, at lunchtime in dc and a lot of meetings whether it's in hallways or whatever with his fbi contact and there's this one moment that happens a little bit later in the film but it's like the moment that really still it's the moment that gets me and like makes my stomach drop every single time i see it is he's harassing his guy his friend in the FBI going, hey, like we we went at this and you guys, we're trying to find out like, you know, we don't want to get this wrong. And he starts tying his shoes and they're, they're standing outside and there's a line up to the White House. Actually, oh, I know White exactly House. what you're talking about. <laughs> and, and just a random person who's lining up seemingly just like a tourist turns around and mm-hmm. takes a photo of them. And every single time I see that person who looks like just a passive tourist randomly turn around and just snap a photograph of those guys together. I, it's never stated again. You don't see the photo again. You would totally, it's just that this person turns around. So if it wasn't an Alan J. Pakula movie and they didn't Mm -hmm. stage it the way that it was staged and Willis doesn't capture it in like utter perfection of like this guy turning around and getting them in that moment, it's like, man, these guys were being watched. They knew who most of their contacts were. They had the web, like they were, they were looking for deep throat. You know, it's, it's start, you start to go, mm-hmm. why would they be chasing Woodward and Bernstein down? Oh, they want to find out who deep throat is. They want to find out who the source is because some of these other sources, they know that he's a source and that's fine, but he wouldn't tell them or he's being grilled that he's a source. And then later on, it sort of pairs up with the hostility that they receive. But I, I so agree that, you know, it, right now we don't we don't think they're in danger because they're so marginalised. But the point from which they're completely not in danger to they are mm-hmm. definitely in danger. It like it ramps up very very quickly. 
Right. And, and just the fact that they're so marginal makes them even greater targets because they're just random reporters. They're not like, you know, he's not the editor in chief. He's just, you know, another guy that's like trying to find a story, but he could kind of quickly disappear. Um, but I, I like that scene that you pointed out. I always think about that one too, because, and, and I like the fact that Bakula doesn't create anything like that right. again, which, you know, for me, it makes me think, how many how many other times is something like this happening? But like just in that moment, he turns away because he's tying his shoe and like looks and notices that. So like how much more often is that happening? <laughs> and also with um, the guy that ties his shoe, it's like did he know that was happening? Did he not want to get his picture taken? Yes, <laughs> like, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, like that, that FBI guy is tactically tying his shoe to get out of a lot of surveillance photographs. Exactly. People dressed as tourists. Um, yeah, but. Yeah, look, it's um, what's your and 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 I'm mindful that we've got to wrap up pretty shortly, so I'll I'll just sort of wrap up pretty quickly with you. Is what's your relationship with this movie right now? When when I ask you to watch this again, um, in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of the political upheaval in your country, in the middle of DC right now, <laughs> and, and this movie, like, how different is that experience for you right now than it maybe has been before? Right. Um. So the first time I watched this movie, maybe like, I don't know, six or seven years ago, maybe uh, like after I graduated college. Um, so this is like the second time I've ever watched it. Um, and, you know, I was shocked again, just how, you know, 15 minutes before it ended, I was like, man, it's just going to end soon. <laughs> That's crazy. Because, you know, like you, as you mentioned before, it's, doesn't actually like get into um, the downfall of the Nixon administration. Right. The downfall. Exactly. And it's just like that, that element surprised me. Um, But it is, you know, I've lived in the DC area all all of my life pretty much. Um, But only in like the past five years um, have I been living in DC. Um, So, I mean, there's definitely a pleasure in, in seeing, you know, this, city's brutalist architecture, the <laughs> government buildings, the men in suits, um, kind of reproduced on screen in, in such a beautiful fashion um, because, you know, there's, there's tons of, of DC movies, but the visual approach tends not to be like the most uh, creative or um, not nearly as lovely as the way Gordon Willis is able to shoot it. Um, but I think the element that stood out to me the most is, um, you know, all the president's men doesn't really romanticize, like it romanticizes the reporting aspect of things. I mean, maybe just for me in particular as a journalist, but it doesn't romanticize the secrecy of the city. Like we don't get much of the other side. Like everything really is secret. Like we just see shadows, names. We don't really get anything about like mystery about what's happening. Um, what's really happening uh, on the other side. And, you know, I, so many political thrillers, I mean, I'm thinking about something like like House of Cards. There's sort of a romanticization of just like the evil power mongering, just like power games of, yes. of like DC people. And like, it's the sort of thing that, I don't know, might get someone to want to work on Capitol Hill, maybe, <laughs> hopefully not. Um, 
Yeah, for, so I know for, a lot of for, people for, like that. <laughs> for, every, for every person who relates to the Sopranos as like a cool ethnic family uh, story mm-hmm. at the very heart of like a mafia story, there are people who are like, that's really good mafia technique. I want to get into the mafia. There's like that very <laughs> no. small percentage. So, you know, if you've, if you've been watching House of Cards and it kicks off and, um, you know, you start off as like these aspirational, you know, gung-ho, you know, minor characters who want to make change. You can then also be that person who wants to be, you know, uh, Mr. He Who Shall Be Not Be Named, uh, uh, Frank, uh, at the center of that thing and, uh, and, and get all the power and manipulate everyone. And it's kind of that, um, it's very sort of Shakespeare, you know, I, I know that's such a rote thing to say, but it's like the Shakespearean thing of like putting you in the halls of power and watching all the machinations of how things work. Like some of his greatest right. works do that. Um, and, and, right. but I think that that's like an alien landscape for these guys. Right. And it's, uh, yeah, the, the house of cards, just like strategy games is the whole thing. It's, it also reminds me of, you know, why people like game of Thrones. Yes. I mean, yeah, it's just it's like very the bodies don't even matter. I mean, that's part of the fun of it because people are just playing against each other. And it's funny because I mean, game of Thrones is popular everywhere, uh, but there's tons of DC political podcasts and more than one of them. I know, have had like side podcasts where they like analyze the politics of game of Thrones. And it's just like <laughs> part of the culture in a particular way that I think really speaks to what, you know, DC's political culture is really like. Um, so, so that is just non-existent in this movie, which I really appreciate because like at the end of the day, I mean, there is something really terrifying about just like the inherent secrecy of all of these institutions and, um, you know, groups of people that have these just enormous power here in the city. Um, so, you know, I was really cognizant of that this time around. <laughs> yeah. This group of, uh, this huge, this huge body of people that are all playing these power games that seem to be outside of the law. And so that the, they mm-hmm. do this dalliance into like, you know, the, the working class world, if you like, they do this dalliance into the working class world and these two journalists are trying to hold them to account because this is like the one, you know, they've slipped, but they know that this is the tip of the iceberg. Like they're not going to, mm-hmm. they're not going to, they're never going to uncover all the secrets. They're barely just trying to find out what happened with this one thing. And then the interconnectedness, right. you know, fortunately leads to that. And, and uh, yeah, I, I think I'm, I think I like you. I go tiresome of like the halls of power analysis and i i think that's that's such a great point is that this movie really relishes in that like boots on the ground version i don't care about your power structures just don't break the, <laughs> just don't break the law all right just don't break the law and do really amoral stuff uh in right a, in just, a, in be. A, just be in an elected position but it's like that inherent thing right bitches this has been really mm-hmm. wonderful talking to you thank you so much for being a part of the show yeah um, you write all over the place. Where is the best places for people to find your stuff? Just really quickly while I've got you. Um, I am a regular contributor to the AV club. That's usually where I'm publishing. Um, I have a website, Beatrice but I need to update it. <laughs> <laughs> 
So, so don't go to beatrice.com. Just yeah, maybe in like a week. In like two weeks, maybe. Uh, yeah, it'll be. Yeah. It's about about a week. Uh, it should be should be fine now because the, uh, as we're recording this, it will probably uh, post in about a week's time. Um, <laughs> um, but Beatrice Lies, thank you so much for being a part of the show. Great to talk to you in DC, and uh, uh, and great to talk to a Pakula fan in this really wonderful um, uh, minute. And great to talk to a Gordon Willis aficionado uh, in this minute as well. It's been a treat. Thank you so much. That was the lovely Beatrice Loiza. You can find her on Twitter at B Loiza, which is B-E-A-L-O-A-Y-Z-A and at BeatriceLoiza.com. L-O-A-Y-Z-A is Loiza. Beatrice is the normal spelling. You can find her around mainly at the AV Club, but there's a bunch of other places that she goes. Thank you, Beatrice, for being a part of the show. Guys, thank you for listening to the show. Uh, If you want to support us, the best thing you can do is subscribe rate and review the show on iTunes and those sorts of places because literally it is the best way to get the show to people who have not yet heard of it who may love it and just share it around if you know folks who are going to dig the show and who love our One Heat Minute Productions kind of deep dives please uh, recommend them to jump onto this show or to jump onto oneheatminute.com for everything that we do thank you for listening to this show more great episodes and incredible people coming this week uh, going in to the incredible Uh, sort of centerpiece of this movie i can't wait to share who we've got lined up for you to talk about those minutes thank you for listening if you do have a couple of bucks and you want to sponsor uh the show we've got a patreon and we also have a link to donate uh, in this very episode on whatever podcast app you're doing you can click on there we appreciate your support in any way shape or form thanks for listening see you soon